Good day, and thanks for joining us for our webinar on Indiana farmland values and cash rents. I'm Jim Minter, director of the Purdue Center for Commercial Agriculture, and joining me today are my colleagues, Dr. Todd Keithy, who's an associate professor in the Department of Agricultural Economics, and also the Schrader Endowed Chair in Farmland Economics. Michael Langemeyer is joining us as well, who's also a professor in the Department of Ag Economics and associate director of the Center for Commercial Agriculture. So each year, this department conducts a survey regarding Indiana farmland values and cash rents. And that survey goes back to, I think, 1974, Todd. You've assumed the mantle of, of managing that survey the last couple of years. So we're really here to talk about, first of all, what the survey's about, who you talk to, and then obviously the results. Yeah, so the survey dates back to the mid-1970s, uh, in part because land is such an important part of the farm balance sheet, farm financial conditions. Uh, but at that time, there was very limited information. And so it's uh, kind of has that legacy where we survey basically anyone whose professional duties, they interact with the farmland market, cash rental market frequently. So we have appraisers, brokers, some lenders, uh, some large farmland owners or farmers. Uh, and we just basically ask sort of what's going on right now with your uh, area in your county um, with land markets in terms of the we split out by productivity, so we look at top, average, and poor quality land. Um, and that's based on, we also ask them their subjective corn yields. So what do you think that thresholds are? And report at the state level, but also uh, at the six regions around the state. Um, and we also do look at recreational land and land transitioning out of agriculture um, as, as part of that as well. But we'll mostly focus, I assume, on uh, productive farmland. So. so I think the viewers are probably interested in this next chart, which is your results uh, sorted by land quality category. And uh, the results kind of jump off the chart. I mean, the percentage increase was unbelievable. Yeah, and it's, it's the record for all the years we've kept the survey in terms of percentage change, right? So we're looking at in the neighborhood of 30 to 34 percent, depending on land quality, uh, which we were up last year as well. So we've been sort of regaining our uh, sort of gaining momentum in terms of speed. Last year was up a, a bit of a surprise, and then this year up uh, even more so. Um, it, but it's not altogether surprising, right? So Iowa State does a similar survey of land values there. They run theirs in the wintertime or fall. Um, and so last year they were report, reporting Iowa land values up 29%. Um, so I mean, it's uh, sort of happening around the Corn Belt. Yeah, it wasn't shocking in that sense, but it yeah. is shocking when you look at the it, historical data. If, if this is the only report you look at every year, then it's, it would be very shocking. Yeah. So. This chart kind of gives us a little bit of a long-term view, so why don't you kind of walk us through a little bit? Yeah, so if we go back to sort of the you know 70s, late 70s where we peak and then dip during the sort of farm financial crisis into the mid-1980s, and there was just really a low or slow gradual rebuild up till about 2008 or 9 when we started to see uh, commodity prices take off, interest rates very low, and it really had a boom period up till about 2014 where land values peaked. Um, and then there was a little bit of a uh, value decline and then kind of held steady for a number of years. And over the last three years, it started to tip back up again. So we get this kind of smile over the last kind of decade or so. Yeah, so if you look at the long-term trend, I think farmland values kind of bottomed out at about 1987, looking at most of the data sets. Yep. Gradual recovery in prices. And then we had a pretty sharp increase starting in that 07, 08, 09 era, up through about 13, 14, right? Yep. And if, the growth, though, since that time has been pretty interesting looking at these nominal values. So I think, what, in 2014, top quality farmland in Indiana was, what, 97.65, and this year you've got it at just under 13,000? Yeah, it's, uh, 
it's quite a jump we've seen over the last uh, two years. So, um, yeah. So this chart looks at inflation-adjusted values. So so far we've been talking about nominal values not adjusted for inflation. Now you've taken a look at the nominal values versus the real values or the inflation-adjusted values, right? Yeah. So. Again, sort of economist idea of inflation being that you know the price of everything is sort of go, go price of all goods and services kind of goes up uniformly, um, and so with that you know uh, as inflation increases, we start to wonder like how much of this price appreciation is just inflation versus the value of that asset. So the the real here what we're doing is dividing it by an index. In this case, it's the uh, GDP chain deflator um, to look at if we were to set these values in today's dollars. What would the uh, the value be in in previous years? So our our last peak um, was we're still above that in real terms, in addition to nominal terms. So like last year, for example, we had a, a record high um, at that time, but it was below in real terms what we were seeing in 2014 because of although inflation was relatively modest, it was enough to add up over those years um, to make the growth nice. But now we're in both a a new high in both real and nominal yeah, terms. Yeah, record values both real and nominal terms, which is which is interesting. And, and uh, uh, we'll, we'll talk more about forecast here in a minute. But yeah. one of the interesting things on the survey, going back a number of years, is where you ask people a series, allow them to respond to a series of questions effectively about what's driving farmland values. So you might share those results with us. Yeah, so we ask all the respondents, we have a, sort, of, sort of 10 kind of things that we associate with land value. So things like income, farmer liquidity, the return to other investments, anything that could drive the price of land values. And we ask them to rate, you know, is this, is this a positive force up to a you know, plus five or a negative force to a minus five? So these are the average for the last three years. Um, and you can see in 2021, everything that could put pressure on farmland was a positive pressure. Everything said was giving signs to like prices should go up, all this stuff is positive. Fast forward to this summer, 2022, again, almost everything is positive except for the interest rates. Um, and so we're in a rising interest rate environment, which as we'll explain more, I'm sure, in, in the future slides, puts downward pressure on land values. Because if we're uh, you know, having to pay more in mortgage expenses or cost of, uh, of funds, then that will push down the, the amount we're willing to bid into the land value. So that's the only thing really pushing downward pressure this summer Everything else still, we had a really good liquidity position. Commodity prices were uh, you know, better than expected they would be uh, over the last few years. Um, we've seen you know, growth in exports, ag policy continues to be accommodating. Um, so all of those things are putting upward pressure on. So really positive perspective, both in 2022 and 2021. When I look back to the 2020 results, there were some things that were bothering people back then, right? People were a little bit worried about crop prices, livestock prices. Net farm income was a concern. Yeah, Those have kind of gone away these last two years, it seems. And, and I think 2020 is more representative of kind of a typical year if you're going to draw a random year where there, there's some things that are positive, some things that are negative, right? We have things that, uh, you know, uh, the, the classic example, are yields are good, but prices are bad or, right, uh, or trade disruptions or policy uncertainty. Uh, but so the, the, the amount of positivity, I think, is, is, is rare historically in the data. Yeah, and we'll talk more about uh, the accuracy of that positivity last year in terms of what actually turned out here in, in a couple of minutes. But um, 
So the other thing you'd look at, and you mentioned this earlier, is you look at the regional variation in values. And there is a lot of variation as you move around the state of Indiana. So you might share some of those results with us. Yeah, so uh, yeah, again, we look at the land values, um, and this is all in the report, uh, fully details. But this is looking at just the land value portion for this year, but we also have uh, sort of last year to comparison, which we can use to make a growth. And so we're seeing really high growth you know, uh, particularly in the northern part of the state, also in some land quality in sort of the southeastern portion of the state. Uh, but still, those high values are kind of clustered in that sort of center part of the state. Yeah, the interesting thing to me is that, you know, west central Indiana, which we tend to think of as being the highest value part of the state, largely based on high productivity for both corn and soybeans, had a, compared to some of the other regions, Modest growth. I, want to, I don't know if I can call a 16 to 19 percent modest, but uh, compared to say northeast, where you're looking at uh, what 35 to 39 percent increase in prices or values. Growth rates are always tricky to kind of wrap your head around because small numbers can have large growth rates easier in large numbers, right? So a a, uh, a you know a dollar increase on something that's very high valued is much different than a dollar increase on something that's cheap, right? Um, and so we tend to see that generally kind of in the economy that the places where we see high values don't always have the highest growth because uh, there's a sort of convergence in the, in the growth. And just to remind the reviewer that you do have corn yields tied to, to yeah. the poor average top in every region. Yeah, so it's possible to look and see like, you know, where, where is my yield in that region? Where would I kind of fit in, um, you know? Am I closer and to even the top do a price divided by yield and see how that compares across yep, yep. regions. And well, and we do we do that as well in the report. Yes, it's and, in the report. And, and that number is relatively stable, right? Yeah. So a lot of times that price difference is really productivity, um, but that sort of dollars per yield you can get from that land stays relatively stable across the state. So one of the things you do is you ask respondents to the survey to anticipate what's going to take place over the next uh, six months or so, and. That's one of the more interesting parts of the survey. Yeah, th that's the part that I'm always most excited to see, right, is what do they think the, the future is going to be. Um, and so here we're showing what we actually observed um, in growth rate for the second half of 2022. Um, and then what we expect for the rest of 2022, right? So the, the observed growth rate was really high. And we have sort of uh, optimistic, but sort of modestly so, uh, respondents about growth rate continuing. So I think most people, if you said like, oh, can we get you, you know, two and a half percent growth rate in a, in a given year, they think that's pretty good. Um, but coming off of those really high growth rates, in fact, if you look at the, the growth rate we've seen across the, from the previous survey, um, there was higher growth at the end of the previous year than there was at the beginning of 2022. And so there's already sign that maybe that growth is kind of slowing or moderating. And it seems like our respondents sort of expect Still positive, but at a slower rate. Yeah, so put that in perspective. It looks like for the last half of this year, they're projecting a fairly modest rate of growth, right? 2.4% uh, for average quality land, 2.7% for top quality, and 1.1% for poor quality. Um, compare that to what people were forecasting for the last half of 21 in last year's survey. Yeah, so in last year's survey, they were much more optimistic going into 2022, that they thought 2022 could be a high growth year. Um, and so they were right. Uh, so uh, we'll see if they're right again, but the, they were definitely, that's why like, we're talking about this sort of growth being surprising. It wasn't entirely surprising to all these respondents, I think. I think they, 
And, and in the comments, we get to also they'll give sort of comments. Last year, they were saying like, oh, it's going to be gangbusters. Things are really going well. Uh, this year, there was a little bit more like things are good, but we're a little bit worried about inflation, a little bit worried about interest rates. Um, so we're still optimistic, but a little bit more cautious. Yeah, I thought that was one of the things that was interesting it was last year's respondents were very bullish on farmland values and their projections turned out to be pretty accurate in terms of comparing values from say June of 21 to December of 21, right? Yep. They anticipated pretty pretty closely what actually took place, which was double digit growth, right? Yep. Yep. Michael? This is about what, what the average would be. Uh, I, I know I know more information for West Central Indiana because we're going. I'm going to talk about that later on. But the average over a long period of time, five six percent uh, growth rate, and so it'd be very consistent with that. Yeah. So that's how I would summarize that. All right. So let's compare what's going on in Indiana to what USDA has collected. And you might back up for just a second and explain to viewers how USDA goes about collecting data. You explained how you do it here in Indiana. USDA has a little different procedure. Yeah. So the USDA does an annual report, comes out usually around the first week of August. Um, and it actually is from a June kind of production report that asks about cash rent and land values. Um, and so they release sort of a nationwide and they break it out, what they call here farm real estate. So that includes building structures, improvements. They also have just crop land or in a lot of states just pasture land. In some states they split out between irrigated and non-irrigated. But this farm real estate is sort of kind of the marquee number. Um, and that's a sort of a weighted sample of farmers based on productivity and making sure it aggregates up to the national, to be nationally representative. Um, and it's done at the uh, sort of local level, aggregated at the state level, and then again aggregated federally. So it, it does tend to be a much smoother process, so you won't see sort of the rise and falls that you tend to see in surveys like, like ours. Um, but the, it's sort of the best number kind of what's going on at the national average. Um, and again, there they're showing land values up quite a bit. Um, not as extreme of growth as what we have here in Indiana, but, um, but it's, it's up quite a bit from the last year as well. Yeah, I, mean, I think in terms of, yeah, we looked at the percentage terms earlier, and I think it was between 12 and 13 percent mm -hmm. increase versus what you were showing for Indiana is about 30 or 31 percent. So one, one thing that I kind of pick up with respect to the difference in the surveys, your survey for Indiana really focuses on people that are, in a relative sense, pretty actively engaged in the farmland market. The USDA survey is people who are connected to the farmland market, but might, might not be actively engaged in buying and selling, and, and maybe not as close to, to contemporaneous activity. Is that a fair characterization or not? I think so. The other thing I would sort of add, and I don't, want, I don't know how deep into the weeds we should go, but the USDA survey asks farmers about their farm. What do you think your farm would sell for? Where we ask sort of a hypothetical of what is the average of the high quality. And so they do a different sort of aggregation process to say from that farm to um, sort of the state level, uh, where ours is kind of, um, it's not tied to any one particular parcel at any point. It's sort of, you know, what's your characterization of the, of and So I, I guess what the really conclusion is, you need to be careful about comparing numbers from the USDA survey to the Indiana survey that you conduct or the Iowa State survey, for example which is comp conducted in a, way, in a way that's much more comparable to what you do. We, but historically, um, the USDA number kind of hangs around our state level average. Um, and if you look at transactions, it sort of hangs close to kind of the median or the value that would split the top half and bottom half. So they all sort of go to what we consider to be sort of the prevailing kind of middle price. Okay. 
So the other thing you've done is take a look at values coming out of these individual state surveys, again, coming, uh, in this case, from USDA, yep. and look at Illinois, Iowa, Indiana, Ohio, versus the U.S. numbers. And there's a lot of difference. Yeah, so the thing that always jumps off that bottom line is the one we had on the previous chart, which looked very dynamic. And when you look at it compared to what we see in the Corn Belt, it's, it's very subdued, right? And a, and a part of that is, again, the productivity differences, right? So we tend to have higher values, um, but also values tend to, as, also as you disaggregate it out at the state level, they think things kind of move around a lot more. So at the federal or the national level, you'll have sort of you know, parts of the country that are rising and falling, um, and so it kind of can average out to kind of a flatter number. Um, but we see much more dynamic, and, it, and it's similar to what we see in our survey, to where we had that sort of rising period starting in sort of uh, middle of the aughts, I guess you would say, up to about 2014, and then a dip or kind of flattening off, and then growth again in the last couple of years. So when you look at the values, and I'm, I'm looking at, for example, Iowa came in at 9,400 on the USDA survey, Illinois at 8,900, Indiana, I think at 8,000, and Ohio at 7,200. And as you look at that and you start making comparisons, for example, on state-level yields, do they match up or? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think it's similar to, to our survey in terms of if you could sort of translate this to productivity, it's going gonna, it's gonna to mostly average out, right? So, so the differences in values across those states largely reflected in average yields across those, or expected yields across yeah, those states. Yeah, and, and also the sort of variability in the states sort of matters. Like, so Illinois and Indiana have sort of, a stronger break in sort of north to south, I think, than Iowa. Maybe I'm mischaracterizing Iowa, but I, th I think if Iowa is roughly more homogenous or similar okay. across the state, uh, where you know there's a big difference between northern Indiana and southern Indiana. Yeah, in terms good, of that's a good point. Good yeah. point. All right, so let's just kind of summarize what you found in the survey overall. Yeah, so new record high again, um, both in nominal and real value. But the real thing I think is the record growth, right? So it's not. Running a survey on an asset that tends to historically go up, you could have a new record high almost every year. But the new record growth is was what the what really jumps out, and that's driven by a lot of positives in the market. Um, farmer liquidity, commodity prices, farm income, are all very strong. Uh, the downside, or the sort of thing that's kind of uh, keeping farmlands from growing even faster, is sort of fear about interest expenses and interest rates going forward. And we'll talk more about that one in, in a couple of minutes. Yeah. But uh, the interest rate consideration is a big one for farmland, right? So that's something we don't want to downplay too much, right? Yep, exactly. So the survey also looks at cash rental rates, and you might just share those with us. Yeah, so again, similar, this is sort of the state level average. Um, top quality land averaging at 300 an acre, uh, average at 252, and poor at the, the average at 207. Um, and those are also growing uh, by record amounts, you know, between 10 and uh, 13%, but also growing slower than the land value prices are growing, right? So Quite a bit slower, right? Your yeah, land yeah. value is up roughly 30% in round numbers, and you're looking at 
10 to maybe 13% on the cash run rates. Michael, you've looked at this quite a bit, I know, a few years ago with one of your graduate students. Yeah, when you look at, when you look at cash rents and land values and the growth since 2007, uh, a 10% change is a big change for cash rents. You can get larger changes for land values, and we did. Uh, not only last year, but some, some, year, some years around 12, 13, we had some pretty large increases there. And, and so this is not all that surprising. Uh, and, 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 and what we're really, what it really comes down to is we've got different factors driving cash rent than driving the land market. Cash rent is really driven by net return to land. Uh, and, and, and so that kind of keeps it in, in, in a smaller band, if you will, whereas land values has, has, has cash rent or net return to land, it has interest rates, it has inflation, it has alternative investments, it has all, all these other factors. And like you said, the stars were aligned uh, in, in, in 22 to have some very large increases in land values because all of the factors, uh, in, you know, in addition to net return to land, all of these other factors were positive uh, where cash rents is primarily driven by the very strong uh, net return the land we saw in 21. Well, I also think part of it, too, is the sort of negotiation process yes. between landlords and tenants. Yes. Thinking, I mean, we're reporting this for 2022, but you almost have to go back to the fall previous of year, fall of 21, yeah. thinking about at that time, although we had these positive pressures with, yeah. with prices. Of, the other part of it is expenses, which people were yeah. very worried about growth and expenses yeah. and eating at their revenue. So maybe hesitant yeah. to want to bid land yeah. Uh, cash rent uh, higher if, in the case of uh, for the farmers. So, Todd, it's interesting to look at the cash rents over time. And we've just taken those and plotted the top, the average, and the poor going back to 2000. And uh, it's pretty interesting, especially when you think about that 300 versus where we were just a few years ago. On top, uh, cash rent was 294, and that was like back in 2014. When you start thinking about that in inflation-adjusted terms, have we set a new record or not? Uh, no, we're still kind of below the previous record in, in those real or inflation-adjusted terms, right? So even though inflation hasn't been uh, very high for that whole time, uh, just a small amount of inflation added up over several years kind of can eat away at that sort of price run. So, uh, and I think that maybe kind of goes into Michael's point uh, about sort of you know, how these are determined as sort of two different economies and two different markets. Um, and so between the, the bidding process, the um, looking at how you can justify what your rents should be uh, really changes that. The other thing I should say too, I always kind of stress when I talk to audiences that like my personal opinion is that cash rent is the hardest number to measure. Because uh, it's not like there's sort of one rent. There's, this is, we're looking at an average that has a very wide dispersion. Most people that farm uh, you know, to support a household will have multiple landlords. And so even the cash rent at their farm can be quite different based on uh, all these sort of negotiation points, right? So uh, people always come to me and say, uh, like, I think your cash number, rent numbers are wrong. And I say, well, what do you think they should be? Half of them think they should be higher, half they should be lower, right? So I guess that's what, how you get to an average, but. Depends uh -huh. on whether you're renting ground or... <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so or, or the owner of the ground. So the other point you made to me earlier was the fact that on all three of these categories, top average and poor quality land, we've kind of crossed over some, uh, maybe some psychological thresholds almost, if you, if you will, right? Yeah, I think for whatever reason, people gravitate towards sort of $50 breaks or $25 breaks. So the idea of 294 to 300, even if you had that same prices in the same year, 
300 feels very different than 294. Like 300 belongs up here in 290s or down in the 200 area. Uh, and the same with 252 and 200, right? So we kind of, I, I think a lot of the initial feedback I've gotten discussing what we found around uh, the state and to other folks, that sort of like, oh, well, now you've crossed 300 or now you've crossed 250, or in the case of low, crossed 200. That somehow feels very different than if I had sort of, you know, 249, somehow 252 feels different. Um, so it is something I think psychologically we kind of anchor, anchor on. The other thing that, that kind of jumps out at me as I'm thinking about the, the rental values and looking at the chart and looking at the historical data is on the top quality land, you're showing on a nominal basis $300 rent versus 294 when we peaked back in, I think, 2014. Actually, it might have been 2013 now that I think about it. Um, average quality and poor quality are showing bigger relative jumps since they peaked back in that 2013, 2014 timeframe. Anything going on there that you? Yeah, I'm really interested to turn that one back to you guys, because you, <laughs> you guys seem to understand, I, I, think, I think a lot of it has to do with productivity differences and what you could do with poor quality land or average quality land, um, or also our risk management policies, crop insurance, marketing. I mean, there's a lot of things that, that We've had a lot of effort in the ag sector to take the worst of what we've got and make it as good as we can. Um, I don't know if we've seen the same sort of effort at taking the top and making it even better. That, that's my that's my hunch. But I, I think that's part of what's going on because I was I was commenting to Jim earlier that 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 yield that subjective yield for that average productivity really jumped the last year or two. And so, and so it, it seems like we're making the, the average productivity ground, maybe that's tr also true of the, the poor quality ground, though it's not that poor by Indiana it's, yeah, standards. Yeah, it's still, still poor, good. Yeah. It's still pretty good ground by Corn Belt uh, standards. We're, making, we're, bringing up the, we're bringing up the subjective yield for that ground. And so I think that's part of what's going on. So this is this is interesting. I think we've got a maybe a master's a student yeah. uh, thesis yeah, well, this is here. This is a testable thing. We can yeah, try to yeah. This, out, is, right? this is interesting. But I think I, it's very noticeable to me that there was a relatively a larger jump in the lower productivity categories than what showed up in the high productivity category, which wasn't what I was expecting offhand, but clearly shows up in the data. Well, the other part of it that kind of ties in. And this is, now I'm just like trying to think of research projects I want to do this year. Uh, the ratio of the cash rent to land values, if there's no difference in, um, in sort of investment across one or the other, that, those, that ratio should hold relatively the same, right? And so if we're in a case where we've been sort of investing more and bringing low productivity land up in productivity, then that should also be reflected not just in the cash rental rates, but in the land values relative to the other cases. So. Yeah, I don't know. This will be fun. All right, so we've got some more data digging to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll, maybe I'll, got I'll be back. A hypothesis. So, so you've broken out the cash runner rates on a regional basis. Uh, again, looking at the different productivity categories within each region. So share those with us. Well, again, this kind of ties into your points earlier about your expectations of the land values. That those all hold much more clearly in cash rents, right? So the most productivity, product, productive land should rent for the highest, right? And so that's kind of what we're seeing in terms of the clusters around the state. Um, the growth rate, again, kind of uh, positive growth almost everywhere. We only have one case, the average quality land, cash rental rates in the southeastern portion um, dipped just slightly. Um, but everywhere else, we've, we've seen pretty good growth, highest growth being in sort of that northeastern portion of the state. 
Yeah, and looking at Southeast, which is kind of interesting, uh, you mentioned the average productivity actually dipped a little, one and a half percent, but really all three categories, very little change. Yeah, right? yeah, relatively stable. So that was maybe a little bit of a surprise, I think, about it. And Michael, I know you pay a lot of attention to West Central. Um, your case farm that we uh, feature on a lot of our mm -hmm. programs uh, is based on West Central Indiana. 329 for uh, the top quality. Does that surprise you at all? Not really. Uh, when I was having conversations last fall and this spring when people were saying rents, there was quite a few people talking over 300. Uh, and so that wasn't real, real surprising. The 10% wasn't that surprising. We're going to talk a little bit about the model I used to predict rents in, uh, in West Central Indiana. I, I was predicting about an 8% increase in cash rent. It came out at 10%. So. So speaking of models, and I, I would like to point out, though, I, I should have mentioned on that chart, there is a rent per bushel that's a very important number uh, for people that are thinking about what, what my ground should rent for. I really encourage them to take a look at the region they're in and look at that rent per bushel number. I get that question a lot. You know, what, do you, what is your corn yield? And then you multiply that by the rent per bushel. It'll give you some uh, some idea, uh, of uh, at least in the ballpark, of where your rent uh, should Maybe be. Maybe you should uh, offer a number of people can call you. No, <laughs> and that, that is a table you have in the report. Yeah, yes. in, the, in the report, yes. we break down the cash rent also similarly sort of by what they reported as the yield for that uh, sort of uh, top average and poor quality. And then we can just divide the cash rent by that to get the similar idea of like, what are you paying in rent to get a bushel of corn, yeah. essentially? All right, so we, we talked about the impact of interest rates on farmland values. So let's talk about the model behind that a little bit. Yeah, so uh, usually when I give this in a, in a talk, I uh, will go very slowly and first warn them that I'm about to show the math, right? Because uh, they're not always wanting to have a professor come in and show them some kind of equation. But this, if you've ever taken an Economics 101, Finance 101, this is just the net present value, right? So the value of any asset that's a productive asset, we just think of it as what could we expect to get from owning it? What are those expected returns that, that the owner gets? But then we want to discount those in the future, right? So we want money now, not into the future. And uh, there's the whole you know, inflation, the, infu the future may not happen, we're impatient consumers, uh, there's returns, the other things we do with our money, right? there's opportunity costs. So we discount things farther in the future, and but we can sort of uh, shave off some of that discount rate if we think there's going to be a high growth in those returns. So we think there's going to be really high growth, and we know we're discounting the future, but we want that to kind of be reflected in the value. And so this gives us sort of a very simple model, like the old joke, all models are wrong, but some are useful. This is a pretty useful way of thinking about land values. And when I think about you know what values currently are, also when I think about what things are going to be in the future, I think about expected returns or income. I think about discount rates. And I think about potential for growth, right? Mm -hmm. So if we just assume a really simple, you know, everything is sort of going to grow at 1%, relatively modest growth rate. And if we look at sort of our returns, think about these sort of like you know, cash rental rates that we're talking about, right? So a $200 cash rent, the, as we shift around that discount rate, the amount of money we can justify paying for that to get access to that return changes pretty quickly with just small changes in those discount rates. Um, and so, you know, I, I often sort of tell the joke about, you know, borrowing money from my dad when I was a teenager versus when I was in college, like the discount rates seemed to get a lot easier as, it, as I started to show I could pay it back, right? Uh, and often I think about it also in terms of, you know, when I go and talk to farmers or farmland owners, everybody always talks about some sale in their area and they just don't understand how this person that bought it could justify that. I often say like, well, 
they clearly just have a different discount rate than you, right? So they, they're they willing to think that um, that makes sense to justify based on, you know, even just subtle variations in that discount rate. And it could be a different growth rate, obviously. Oh, yeah, and, and, or a different growth rate, yeah, if, they, if, well. they, if they think they can get it to grow. Or expected returns are different. Maybe they think they, their expected returns are higher. Yeah, some, but yeah. somewhere out of those yeah. three variables, you can get to disagreements yes. pretty quick. Yes, you can. Right, just by, by even just small changes in one or the other. Yeah. And so just walk us through the numbers there, because I, I think it's instructive to think of how much impact a change in that discount rate can have on the expected value of that asset. So, yeah, so if we take 200 and we divide it by 3% minus 1%, right, 2%, that'll give us $10,000, right? That's, that's what we could justify paying to get access to land that we could cash rent out for $200, right? But if we, wanted, if we increase our discount rate to just 4.5%, so it's not a, a drastic jump uh, in holding that growth rate constant. It'll fall all the way, you know, 5,714 there, right? So it, it's easier to look at three and six because those numbers are nice and round. If we go all the way up to six, we'll drop down to 4,000, right? So just changing what we think about our discount rate, um, or even if we have the same discount rate, but we just are able to change what we can expect in our returns, then we can go from, for example, at a 3% discount rate from 10 to 15 to $20,000 just by a $100 increment changes in that expected return. Yeah, so it, and as I look at the chart that you've put up here on the screen for us, you know, one of the things that I think is quite striking is we think about rising interest rates over the next several years. It could have a pretty large impact on people's willingness to pay for farmland, right? It, it does. Um, but again, it comes down to, as I know we're going to talk about, which discount rate should we think about, right? So there's a lot of... Attention in the particularly the, in the you know financial press or the ag press about sort of the short run uh, sort of policy rates set at the yield curve or the sort of low end of the yield curve what what the Fed's doing what's happening there, but it's really for mortgages it's it's out at that yeah. longer end, right? So we look at more like the ten year Treasury or look at farm mortgages directly when we can to say like what's kind of happening at that sort of scale because we're we're looking at financing something over several years. Uh, Changes in the short run yield really are the short end of the yield curve really affect sort of decisions for this year, but it's things at the longer run that affect you know sort of multiple year decisions. But but in either either case, all of those rates are sort of been inching up over the last year. Yeah. So let's take a look. You've looked at the cash rent to land value ratio, which is another way of, of tackling this topic. Yeah. So we just think about you know what what can what percent of that value can we get, and so we call this sort of the cap rate. Um, and you can see that really since the mid-1980s, we've seen pretty much a uniform decline in the cap rate. We, we had been holding steady for the last six or seven years at around 2.5, so we've dipped a little bit again. But this again goes back to our discussion that the land values are rising faster than the cash rent. Mm -hmm. And so you get this sort of suppression of the cap rate. Uh, I was actually just talking to a group of farmers this morning. I said, well, the good news is, this is how economists tell good news, this isn't unique to the ag sector. There's sort of a suppression of cap rates across uh, productive assets in the economy. This is not sort of unique to farmland, but we are seeing this sort of continued pressure, which, again, kind of gets to the idea of what value could we justify paying if our percentage or return that we're expecting to receive continues to decline? Is that going to put some downward pressure on what people are willing to bid? So let's think about those discount rates in a little more uh, complete fashion. And, and you've taken a look at three common rates that get quoted a lot in the press. Yeah, and I often use this to sort of stress to people who are interested in the land market. 
that um, so there's a lot of attention to what the Federal Reserve is doing about setting uh, the federal funds rate. Right. So this is the policy rate. This is the overnight deposit that the Fed will pay to banks. And so when the uh, the Federal Reserve Committee, the Federal Open Market Committee meets to set the rate, this is the rate that they're targeting. And it's been inching up over the last uh, several months, right? So if we go back to, uh, so I always think going back to sort of 2009, where we had the Great Recession and the Fed cut rates drastically, held it low for a long time, and then we're sort of inching them back up again. And then we had uh, COVID and all the financial challenges there. They cut the rates again. And so now as we, you know, we're near full employment, um, inflation pressures are ticking up, the Fed is saying, well, we need to start raising rates uh, to sort of uh, make sure the economy doesn't get too hot. Or also, if there's a recession in the future, we want to be able to cut rates, right? So I, I often say that it's like the reason I give my kids a tablet is so that I can take it away later, right? So we want to raise them now so that way in the future, if we need to uh, cut back, we have wiggle room to do that in the policy. But I also sort of argue with farmland that doesn't matter as much as some people say. So if you go forward... So the prime rate, this is what a bank charges to their best business customer for short-run loans. Generally speaking, prime rate is 3% above Fed funds rate. So the, the banks don't make a lot of money here. This is basically the cost of doing business, turning on the lights, paying for your employees. And so you can see there's almost like a perfect one-to-one -one step. The Fed raises the, raises the Fed funds rate, prime rate goes up in lockstep. So then go forward one more. The farm mortgage rate, and this comes from the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago, does a survey of ag lenders. So this is for is representative kind of a, for farm mortgages in Iowa, the northern two-thirds of Illinois and Indiana, the southern one-third of Wisconsin, and the lower peninsula of Michigan. That's that sort of region of the country. So kind of Corn Belt plus, maybe. Um, and you can see that it generally kind of tracks with the Fed funds rate. Like they tend to kind of go up together or go down together, but it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's not that because the, so the Fed raising interest rates is more of a symptom of what's going on in the economy when we think about land values than it is the cause. It's not like the Fed directly changes what the mortgage rates. The mortgage rates are set among bond, bond traders in a market they, they're absorbing the same information as the Fed, but they don't always respond the same. In fact, if you look at the sort of spread between the farm mortgage rate and the prime rate, that really tells us what is the relative risk from a lender's perspective of funding the purchase of land versus loaning it to businesses short term. So sometimes that rate can get spread out quite a bit if they think there's more risk in the ag sector. Other times you can go all the way to sort of a negative spread if they think there's more risk now of loaning to businesses short run because if a farm mortgage uh, fails, at least the, the farm gets to own, the, the bank will own a farm, right? There's still some base value there. So as we think about interest rates going forward, there's sort of this rise in all of the interest rates, but the one we need to really think about is what's happening sort of at the farm mortgage rate. That's what will affect the price of land. So looking at the chart and the history, you know, I, I would characterize the farm mortgage rate relative to, for example, the federal funds rate as drifting in the same direction, right? Yeah, they're sharing information. They're linked, but not a one-to-one -one course. But if you look at what's happened here in the last, maybe since the beginning of this year, they look like they're moving pretty tightly. Yeah, yeah, and they definitely have periods where they move together pretty tightly, right? So, uh, but uh, I think the sort of which, what's causing them to move, um, 
is is one of the things that sort of can create confusion among people in the marketplace. Um, so the Fed is raising rates based on economic conditions. Mortgage uh, or bond traders are also raising rates based on those same things, but it's not sort of a, because there's a policy shift, we're going to see, right? Because we can also see it's sort of what was happening around 2009, where the Fed cut rates drastically, farm mortgage rates fell by a bit, right? So I think I think we may also kind of end up with that same thing. The other thing is, I mean, we're, we're starting from what could be sort of the natural floor of all of these series, so they're all going to kind of go up together. But I would expect to see some divergence um, over the next couple of years in terms of going the back to the projections, you know, that they, that the that the respondents had for the last six months of 22. I can see why they're concerned with with the increasing interest rates. I agree with that, but they still are relatively low. I think that's what we got got to remind the the viewer here is is, is even though they're increasing a little bit, and they're not done increasing. They're going to increase some more here uh, in twenty two as the Fed fund rates goes up. They're still relatively low historically. And and and, and history doesn't have to be that far, right? Yeah. We still have a long way to go just to get to where we were two thousand seven yes. eight when we had the the previous farmland price boom. But I do think we're going to see continued upward yeah. movement in all of these. Uh, and it's, I think it's the pace of the movement that'll really dictate how much this impacts land values. But, it, yeah. but also the other thing is just the sort of the anticipation that they might go up in the future can be enough for people to say, I don't know if I want to bid that high because like, yeah. it's going to keep going up, right? And so, um, yeah. So I think the consensus is all three of us agree with the survey respondents that going forward, one of the negatives on farmland values is clearly going to be what takes place with respect to interest rates, right? Yep. Oh, for sure. So let's just kind of summarize what you found on cash rents. So cash rents are up 10 to 13 percent. Um, and we've seen the, so although they're growing again at a record level for cash rent growth, that still is much less than we've seen in the growth of, of land values. So we have this sort of continued compression of that sort of cap rate or, or the uh, rents relative to land values. Michael, you've taken a pretty detailed look over a number of years now with yeah. respect to cash rents, and you might share your results. Yeah, that what I'm look, doing here is showing the relationship between cash rent and net return to land. If this is for West Central Indiana average productivity soil, but the, the relationship would hold across the Corn Belt. And, and there's a couple things that are very important from this chart. One is that cash rent is, is, is much smoother uh, you have, uh, from a trend trend standpoint than net return to land. It, it's not near as volatile. It's another way uh, to, to state that, near, not near as variable. And so that's pretty obvious. But what's maybe not so obvious from this chart uh, but uh, it, it's very important to understand is, is net return to land is very, very important in determining cash rent, particularly looking at uh, is it high statistical uh, significance between looking at lag net return to land and cash rent the next year. There's a very close link there. And so I wasn't that surprised that we saw that increase in 22 because as this chart shows, uh, 21 was a very good year in terms of net return to land. Looking ahead, uh, this is obviously, obviously a projection we got. Uh, we still got quite a ways to go here before prices are determined uh, for the 22 crop. But 22 doesn't look that bad. And so what I want to, uh, how I want to summarize this chart is there really isn't that much downward pressure on cash rent right now. Even though net return to land is significantly lower in 22 compared to 21, we're still looking at su support uh, for the current cash rent levels. Yeah, and so looking at your projections for uh, net returns, first of all, I think we should talk about where those came from. Those mm -hmm. are based on your simulation 
of a farm in West Central Indiana, one that we use in a lot of our mm -hmm. programs, but a typical corn-soybean operation, roughly, I think maybe it's in terms of scale, about 3,000 yes. acres, right? So you've simulated that going back over time, and that's where you come up with your net return to land uh, calculations. The cash rents, of course, are coming mm -hmm. out of the survey. As you look at what took place in, in 21, I mean, the, the, the rise relative to 20 was phenomenal. So just to put some numbers on it, in 20, your estimate was net return to land of 331. Your estimate, and, and you've got some assumptions built in here yeah. in terms of marketing, but still over $500 an acre net return to land, right? And so the, the, I think where you're coming from is why didn't cash run increase more? Uh, well, uh, the, you know, there's negotiations that take place here, and so that's very important, uh, very important to point out. Uh, but it takes a really large change in, in net return to land uh, to drive a change in cash rent. Uh, and and from from the model that I use, a, a hundred dollar increase in net return to land increases cash rent ten dollars, and so it's not a one to one. Uh, it's 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 it you know it's it's ten to one. It takes a it takes a really large change in net return to land or a decline in net return to land uh, to reduce cash rent. Why is that? Well, I think part of the reason is is people are looking at kind of an average return over time rather than one year, and so they're saying, well, you know, if they were going in uh, last fall, they're saying, well, twenty one looks pretty good, but that's probably not going to stay. Uh, you know, stay $500 per acre for the next five years, and so and so. And when they start the negotiations, they they they, they don't they don't increase it uh, as much as net return to land. I think they should make sense from a negotiation standpoint because you don't want cash as a as an owner of land or as an operator, you don't want cash rent making these these 15, 20 percent changes from one year to the next. You want something that's more smooth. So, looking at your projection, do you expect any downward pressure on cash rents for 22? Or excuse me, for 23? No, uh, flat to maybe five percent higher. It, it ten percent, I think, is, is unless returns uh, start looking a lot better here. Corn price starts jumping, and we have record yields, which it doesn't look like we're going to have necessarily. Uh, I think we're looking at uh, a zero to five percent. This is the actual model, just to show you that it does have a, a, a decent fit, but there's years where it, uh, it, it's, it's not perfect. Certainly uh, that 10, 11, 12, 13 period was very difficult uh, to predict what was going on with, with cash rent. Uh, but I, I underestimated a little bit this year, uh, but it, it was relatively small. I think it was a five to $5 difference between the actual, uh, actual cash rent in the report uh, compared to my projection. Okay. Okay, let's shift gears here a little bit. This is actually the inverse of the capitalization rate that, that, that Todd, Todd was talking about earlier. And, and the reason why I do this is I want to relate this to the price-earnings ratio uh, for stocks. And so I invert this and then take a look at uh, how it compares to the long-run average. Uh, and obviously, uh, uh, the, 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 uh, the, the farmland price-to-cash-rent cash ratio is, is relatively high. Uh, this is just another way of saying that the capitalization rate is relatively low. Uh, can it remain that high? Well, I, I think this, this, this uh, increase in interest rates is going to put downward pressure on this ratio. Uh, and, and, so, and so I don't think we're going back to that, that 20 anytime soon. That would be going back to a 5% capitalization rate. I don't think that's going to happen. Uh, but I do think there is some upward pressure on the capitalization rate uh, and some downward pressure on the price to rent ratio. Um, this is a really busy slide, and so let me deter some of the, the, the terms here. Uh, and what I'm doing here is, is rather than looking at just one year 
rent. I'm looking at a 10-year average rent in relationship to farmland price because because you know as we saw that that previous chart, uh, one year can be a big outlier. Five hundred dollars for. 2021, for example, and so and so, I think when people are negotiating cash rents and and thinking about uh, thinking about profitability, they're thinking more long term, and so this this chart reflects that. I've got uh, farmland price divided by average moving average of cash rent, a 10-year average. Uh, I've got a price divided by a 10-year average of net return to land, and then I've got the uh, uh, S&P 500 index uh, 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 divided by the 10-year moving average of earnings. And so I want to start by looking at the, the relationship between the green line and let's just say the P rent 10. Uh, which is the farmland price divided by the moving average of cash rent. It, it's obvious, there's two things that are very obvious when we compare uh, farmland to the stock market. Number one, the stock market is much more variable. That's, that's, that's true. Uh, you know, you know, uh, and then another, another thing I want to uh, uh, garner uh, from that comparison is there really is a, not a close link uh, between movements in the stock market and movements in farmland. I mean, researchers, Todd, have been looking at that for years, and we've been, we've been finding that result for years. But I thought I would just show this graph uh, to illustrate that. Uh, the other thing I wanted to show with this graph is it seems like uh, the, the red line and the blue line are in equilibrium in 2020. And so what I mean by that, it doesn't seem like cash rents necessarily higher uh, than what the, uh, the previous 10 years of earnings would suggest or vice versa. Uh, and, and so I think we're very close to being in equilibrium uh, in terms of cash rent uh, and, and net return to land from a long run perspective. Okay. Um, another chart, a couple charts I want to look at here is, is just to show how good of investment farmland really has been. Uh, and so I've got a, a two charts that related to this. One, this first one is a 10-year rate of return, uh, and, and ret here returns include uh, the cash rent value and capital gains, and so I'm adding those together to get a rate of return uh, in relationship to the P-rent-10 ratio. Uh, and as the P-rent-10 ratio increases, you'd expect to get lower returns, and so there is a, uh, there is a downward trend uh, on those, on those, uh, on those uh, triangles. Uh, I didn't fit a line there, but uh, certainly there would be a downward trend there. Uh, but, the, but another thing this chart shows is how good, uh, how good this land market has really been the last 10 years. If you look at 2011, which would be uh, looking at returns from 2011 to 2021, uh, and then 2012, uh, 2012 uh, to 2022, uh, it's been a pretty solid return, despite the fact that we've had a, a high farmland price uh, to, to rent ratio. Uh, and so you're looking at returns during the 2011-2012 uh, period, if you bought land in those in those years at six, seven percent. Uh, and so that's, that's really interesting because uh, one of the things we talked about in previous, uh, uh, previous uh, webinars related to land values is what's going to happen uh, when we start seeing these high uh, price to rent ratios. Are we going to see some very low returns? Well, obviously, so far, the answer is no. So I have to ask, Michael, there's a couple of uh, triangles on the chart uh, that are, uh, in one case, below zero. Uh, and a couple others that are just barely above zero. And I have to ask you what years those were. Um, I've, stumped, my, I've stumped him. <laughs> my guess is, my, this goes back to 1960. My guess is that's during that, 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 uh, that 1980s period when you had some declining land values that it just didn't hold up. 
And so despite the fact you're getting a, uh, getting a, 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 a fairly decent uh, uh, you know, cap rate, the cap rate was relatively high, uh, you had negative capital gains and they just weren't holding up. Okay. Yeah. So you're not predicting a return to that? No. Okay. We're not predicting a return to the 1980s. All right. Uh, this one here is, 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 uh, is, is, should make people optimistic uh, that own farmland. Uh, is this is looking at a 20-year rate of return. Uh, and so we go 20 years ago uh, investing in land in 2002, and then what was the return 2002 uh, to 2020, uh, 2022 in relationship to the P-rent ratio. Uh, and, and that large green triangle there is, is the latest observation we have. And uh, uh, the, the, granted, the P-rent 10 ratio was only 20 at that, at that time, uh, you know, in 2002, uh, but the return was well over 10%. Uh, and so a very healthy return here uh, for the last 20 years, but probably the most remarkable thing about this chart, and again, this is 1960 uh, to 2002, a very long period of time, it never drops below 6%. Think about the stock market. Uh, you have a 10-year period, a 20-year period, does it drop below 6%? Probably. Think about bonds, do they drop below 6%? Probably, uh, and so this is a this just tells you how resilient the farmland market really is uh, in, in terms of generating positive returns. So I just like to point out that the chart points out how resilient it has been in the past. Yes, <laughs> the past is not necessarily yeah. a predictor and, and, of the future. And as we go into these very very high P rent ratios, we're literally off the chart. And so we're kind of an uncharted territory there, and so the proof will be in the pudding. We'll keep uh, we'll keep presenting these in, in future land webinars and, and see where we stand. So Todd, am I going to get a forecast out of him here? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. We'll see. Is he going to tell us an, an amount and when? <laughs> well, at the same time, I, I think that is the big concern, yeah. though, that it, it, the high P yes. uh, rent ratios that we're at today. What will those returns be ten years and twenty years given out? Particularly given that we've got a different interest rate environment, we've got to remember that you go back even ten years, the interest rate environment really was not that different. We had low interest rates; they weren't increasing. They didn't have anything; they were going down. We look at a ten-year moving average of interest rates; they were coming down. And so we're in a different environment right now. And so that's a little concerning uh, for those high P rent ratios we've seen recently. It's, it's certainly a little concerning uh, and, and, uh, and, uh, and uh, we, we could see lower rates than what I'm showing in the charts here for, for uh, uh, 10 year and 20 year. That's certainly the, certainly the case. Well, as people that study the dismal science, as they yeah. call us, the, uh, the good news would be though, if, if things are worse off, it's probably worse off across the the entire economy, right? I, I don't think we'll be in a case where the ag sector uh, is plummeting relative to everything else, right? So the same things that would put downward pressure relative to the past are also true of anything else you want to invest in, right? So yeah. I, I would expect sort of long-term farmland sort of continues that place where it's uh, slightly higher returns than, than the safest investments uh, but much lower variance than the higher risk investments, right? It kind of sits comfortably in the middle between sort of equities and bonds. Yeah, and kind of add to the P-rent ratio, uh, we've went through a period since 2007 where there was a lot more positive factors for farmland than there was for cash rent. You know, again, they're different markets. I think we're going into a phase now where we could see some just as big, if not slightly higher increases in cash rent than farmland values because of that increase in interest rates. And so this will be an interesting period, uh, interesting period to watch. And what that means is some moderation of this P-rent ratio. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see too with, I mean, the other sort of elephant in the room is 
inflation. And yes. What's the changing with inflation? And as the negotiation process starts up in the fall, if you're seeing your expenses, all of your other expenses inflating, how much are you willing to justify on higher rents, even if, if your returns and commodity prices are inflating as well? So I think that's the other kind of thing that I'll be really curious to watch is to see how that negotiation process works out under this, you know, it seems like we always say high uncertainty, but now it feels like high, high uncertainty or something, right? Like the, the what's going to go on in that sort of uh, return space going forward. So. And, and just to kind of follow up on that a little bit uh, uh, from the, you know, from our recent ag, ag economy barometer surveys, uh, the thing that they, the thing that they list as their biggest concern, Jim, is, is input costs by quite a ways. Uh, they're more concerned about input costs than they are prices and, 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 and many other things. And so you're right. Uh, that's going to enter into the cash rent negotiations. I guess the other thing that we picked up on the Ag Economy Barometer surveys is the fact that there appears to be a, a divergence between people's short-run expectations for farmland values versus their longer-run expectation. So short-run, we're picking up more negativity, um, or maybe a, a better way to say it is less positivity, because uh, the index is still at a relatively high level, but it's, it's dropped significantly compared to where it was last fall. Whereas the long-term index, and, the, and in that survey, for our viewers that don't follow that, the long-term in that context is defined as five years out versus 12, 12 months for a short, uh, short run, um, they are much more positive. They've lost a little bit of the positive outlook they had last fall, but not near as much as what they've lost with relative to the short term. So we're picking up that tremendous uncertainty about the short run, which I think is inflation, input cost, output prices, and interest rates, but from a longer-term perspective, are, are more confident of really kind of the things you were talking about. And I guess to reiterate your point, Todd, if we do see something that's really negative for farmland values, it's probably going to be very negative for things like stock market values as well, right? Yeah. That's kind of where you're coming from. The, the, also, to put in a plug, you mentioned the, the CME barometer in the report. We also have a number of articles, like one that outlines Mark Michael's thing. But you guys had a nice one about the CME barometer, farmland expectations, with mm -hmm. uh, that you wrote with our grad student, Chad Fichter. So yeah, it was nice yeah. to... So with that, I'm going to wrap up uh, today's webinar. So thanks for joining us. The full report that Todd's referenced a couple of different times is available on the Commercial Ag's uh, website, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. When you get there, click on publications on the main menu bar. And one of the selections uh, actually talks about the, uh, the farmland value survey. So you'll go directly to that. Our next Outlook webinar will be on September 16th. Uh, Michael Langemeyer and Nathan Thompson will be joining me for that one. Of course, that will follow the release of updated crop production estimates from USDA as well as updated world ag supply demand estimates from USDA. And of course, all of this will be on our podcast, Purdue Commercial Agcast, and you can subscribe to that uh, and wherever you get your podcast uh, as well as listen to it on our website, again, purdue.edu slash commercial ag. So on behalf of my colleagues, uh, uh, Michael Langemeyer and Todd Keithy, I'm Jim Mintert. Thanks for joining us.